So this morning we pick up in an Orthodox Catechism, chapter 3, um, the second part on man's redemption. God the Father. That's questions 25 through 27. So if you've been with us for uh, a while now, you've, you've noticed we've been going through the Catechism. Um, and again, the, the, the Catechism is broken up in sort of that, that three part, those, those three sections. Anybody remember what those are? Besides Crystal and Brian. <laughs> those three sections. Who remembers? Kyle? The first one, misery. This is sort of cheating because you're teaching the class. I know, but I know. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Misery? All right. What's second? Cecily's pointing to Arnie. <laughs> Redemption? Yep. Misery, redemption, and what's the last? Thankfulness, yes. Misery, redemption, and thankfulness. <laughs> I heard a few voices, so I'll collectively count that as whoever said it. Misery, thankfulness, and redemption. All right, so we come to question 25. We come to question 25 through 27. So let me, let's just jump right into it. Let me have someone read uh, question 25 and then someone else the answer to question 25. Who wants to read the question? All right, Andrew, and then the answer. All right, Anna, jumping right in. <laughs> let's do it. What do you believe when you say, I believe that God the Father Almighty, maker of Thank you. And you see a few verses there. Um, a few of those will hit uh, the others. Just keep in mind and maybe study out. But the second part of chapter three and the catechism focuses our attention on God the Father. Now, this section really follows the order of the Apostles' Creed, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. Those words from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this section briefly explains God's power over creation and the fact that he graciously sustains everything. And how we can really, as Christians, rest in the fact that God does graciously sustain everything by his own power and providence. How the knowledge of God's providence helps us to strengthen our faith as Christians, we'll, we'll talk through and this section uses some of the language and the flow of chapter two of paragraph three of our confession in the 1689. The flow of that paragraph in the confession says, the father is not derived from anyone. The son is eternally begotten of the father and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Um, Arnie talked about that last week. This mystery of mysteries, the, the Trinity, uh, 
the Son being eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son. Um, these aren't categories where you sort of, you hear and you walk away like, all right, I got that down packed. Um, God wouldn't be God if we could fully um, uh, apprehend him. But we can learn, we can grow, and scripture calls us to pursue a knowledge of God in that way. So the sovereignty and providence of God are highlighted as our hope in this life and in the life to come. The name of God used here is referring essentially to God the Father in that, in that uh, question and answer of the, the catechism. is referring essentially to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because the phrase, I believe in, is referred in the same way to all three persons of the Godhead. At the same time, the use of this title, Father, is to highlight God's providence, his protection, and his provision. Providence, protection, provision. Your sinus says, to believe in God the Father, therefore, is to believe in that God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to believe that he is also my father and as such has a fatherly affection toward me for and on account of Christ alone. That he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, his eternally begotten son, and also is my father and has a fatherly affection toward me um, and his son in whom he has adopted me as his child. In a word, it is to believe, one, that he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and two, that he is a father to me for Christ's sake. So, your sinus and uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, and following that in our catechism, and Orthodox Catechism, Hercules Collins, um, keeping this language to emphasize that the Christian has God as his father by virtue of their union with Christ. Um, you can hear language sometimes in the culture in the world that says, well, we're, we're all children of God and uh, God is going to bless us and protect us all because we're all his. Um, we are all God's creation. And I'll talk about this even later in the Lord's Supper, that we all benefit from the mercies of God. But uh, the father is the father of the Christian for Christ's sake, because they have union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's essential to our salvation. The way the question and answer are worded here is meant to draw our attention to the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. We are adopted by the Father for Christ's sake, but we also see the Trinitarian nature of creation and providence in this chapter. Our salvation is Trinitarian. We are predestined, uh, elected um, by the counsel of our triune God with an emphasis on the Father. Um, the Son has purchased our salvation. He's died for our sin and the incarnation. And the Holy Spirit has sealed to and for and in the Christian the life of Christ on their account. We cannot have salvation if our God is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our salvation is Trinitarian. But we'll also see in this section the Trinitarian nature of creation and providence. Now, some of this we'll see and the specific, these questions of 25 to 27. But then we'll also see this as we go on to the next questions after this point that focus on the Son and then the Holy Spirit. So again, this part of the catechism is drawing our attention to the Trinity. Um, and here, 
the Trinitarian nature of creation. Genesis 1, 1 to 2. Do I have that on your handout? Is that there? Okay, somebody go ahead and read that for us. Okay, <clears throat> so we see this. We've read this before, this language of void, darkness, deep, um, and light. And then we also see the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then Job 33, 4 uh, picks up with similar language. Who can read that for us? I got it. The spirit okay. of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty is me life. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> And then Hebrews 1, 3. Someone read that for us. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the words of his power. Okay. To believe, with these verses in mind, to believe in God the Father Almighty is to entrust ourselves completely to his provision and providence. This God, I believe, is to be my God and Father for Christ's sake, and therefore to trust in him and to rely upon him in the same. Trusting and relying upon God cannot happen if we think that we are independent of God. Right. So there's, a, again, an emphasis in this section on the Father, but this language also brings out the Trinitarian nature of creation and providence. To trust and rely upon God is to give ourselves completely to the fact that God also, he not only creates, but he sustains and he provides. When we believe that we do not need God, we are trusting and relying upon ourselves. Our Heavenly Father provides all of our needs. What is the greatest area of need for the sinner? What is his greatest area of need? This isn't a trick question. Salvation. salvation, right? His greatest area of need is salvation. Most of the questions I answer are just, <laughs> the, 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 the question is easy, the answer is on the surface, so just, just say it. Um, salvation, our greatest need is salvation. So God provides our physical needs. We can see even in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. Uh, did you eat breakfast this morning? Did you have dinner last night? Did you eat at any point yesterday? That's an opportunity and occasion for Thanksgiving. The Lord has provided your daily bread. Um, we don't have to live in a um, sort of uh, agricultural, agrarian context and plant seed and wait for the sun and the rain and the harvest in order to recognize that God provides our daily bread. If you have Papa John's, the Lord has provided your daily bread. He's given you food to eat and taste buds even to enjoy it. These things come from God. And yet our greatest need, the greatest need of the sinner is salvation. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? Uh, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Isaiah 118 says, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Our greatest need is to be cleansed of our sin, is to have our corrupt natures uh, recreated, 
uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our greatest need is to be cleansed and brought into a right covenantal relationship with God. In John 1, uh, the disciple, he proclaims this title for the Lord Jesus Christ, which describes the reason for the incarnation. He says, and I'll give you, um, I'm going to leave it blank and let you fill it in. John 1, 29, behold the blank of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's the blank? Behold the, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is, this title is essential to understand what the sinner's greatest need is. We see in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that God has given and even commanded that animal sacrifices be offered to atone for sin in a temporary way, to allow the people to remain in the land and receive God's blessing, and to allow a holy God to dwell with the sinful people. This title that John gives, Behold, the Lamb of God, is communicating that uh, in a final and ultimate way, God will dwell with his people, but not by a temporary lamb or bull or goat, but by the Lamb of God, God's giving his only son as the sacrifice for sin. This is man's greatest need. It's not um, a good job, as important as that is. We are called to work and to work well. Uh, It's not a nice house or a nice car or even positive relationships with friends and family. All those things are good and great and we enjoy them and we should be thankful for them. But man's greatest need, if he has none of those things, is still his sin before holy God, which God deals with in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our our greatest need. Uh, Let me have someone read Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. Thank you. Our Heavenly Father provides our greatest need through the covenant of grace, by which he brings sinners into union with Christ, rescuing them from their status as children of the devil and sealing them as children of God. So the answer and question to number 25 leads us from thinking about God's provision and the uh, precision of salvation to God's provision through thinking more broadly of his works of providence. So God provides our greatest need, our our triune God, and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can also uh, be really amazed and in awe of God's providence and creation through his works of providence. Paul in Romans 8, he also moves from our trust in God for the protection and sustaining of, of our salvation to reliance upon God and common providences. We'll call it common providences. He says, He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. Romans 8.32. God is able to accomplish whatever he wills, and his infinite power and wisdom he upholds, he directs, He arranges, he governs all creatures 
and things from the greatest to the least. We see that language in the confession as well. Now, one of the ways that we show our reliance upon our Heavenly Father, or put it like this, one of the ways that our reliance upon God is challenged is when we uh, come across God's uh, afflictive providence. That's language that we're used in by our forefathers to talk about seasons and trials and of hardship. When things don't go the way we planned. When we plan our way, we pray, and it seems the whole thing has been destroyed, uprooted. Um, when we face calamity, when we face seasons of darkness, our confidence in God is at times challenged. We find ourselves um, doubting and distrusting and needing encouragement by the Spirit and by the community of saints, which we always do, but even more so at, at those times. When we face troubles in life, those are the hardest times to trust in God's wise providence because we cannot see his invisible ways and works. 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul himself, he sort of, the scriptures give, give us a peek into Paul's sort of internal uh, conflict and dialogue. And this is what he says. Let me have someone read 2 Corinthians 1.8 for us. He says we were burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Aren't you grateful that the scriptures give us internal commentary on how the saints thought, what they felt, their troubles? Because at times we can look at scripture and we see the, uh, the, the great uh, men and women of the faith and we think, I'll, I'll, I'll never be that. I'll never get to that point. I'll never have that type of faith to be willing to leave a land, to go somewhere where I have no idea where I'm going, or to be able to entrust myself to the Lord to that degree. But here, the Spirit gives us this divine commentary and says, Paul was burdened beyond his strength. He despaired of life itself. You know what that means? He didn't want to live. He, he despaired living, continuing in life. That's... Um, Helpful. I know it sounds dark, but this is it's helpful commentary for us to read and to hear because at times we can identify with that, with those feelings, those thoughts, those those uh, that sense of of downcastness. Lamentations three, one to three um, is another uh, great passage inspired by the Holy Spirit. This commentary on uh, Jeremiah's affliction. Let me have someone read that for, for us. Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations 3, 1 to 3. Now, what's interesting about Lamentations, um, Lamentations 3, I mean, Lamentations itself is a really interesting book. Um, I'm reading another book, uh, Deep Clouds, Dark mercy dark clouds deep mercy, dark clouds, deep mercy. <laughs> i am reading it i, I know <laughs> i'm almost done it's a really good book but he deals with lamentations uh three the, the author um and 
one of the really interesting things about Lamentations is that he's not, this isn't a commentary on what God is actually doing when he says the Lord has bent his bow and set me as his target. This is the internal commentary of what he feels the Lord is doing. He's telling us how he, he's feeling about God at the moment. Uh, God isn't act, actually working um, against him. The Lord hasn't actually bent his bow and set him as his target. Um, the Lord hasn't actually um, hidden his face perpetually from him. But this is how he feels um, in this season of affliction. And this is how we feel at times, if we're honest. We feel downcast. We feel depressed. We feel like the Lord has turned his face against us in different seasons. And so you can ask, what hope and confidence can, we, can the child of God have in seasons of dark providence? What promise do they have that would reinforce their faith that God is holy and righteous and actually for them and not against them? When we plead and pray for deliverance and God does not deliver at that moment, the defect is not in God, it's in us, it's in his creatures, it's in our uh, thought, our ideas about God. We invert the order of authority at times and conclude that God must not be able to accomplish what he promises or sustain what he commands. And so we sort of put ourselves in the place of God and say, I prayed for this. You know, I'm sincere. Why haven't you answered? Where is the answer? I've been waiting for five years or 10 years or three months or a few days. But we become judge and God becomes the one who's on who we put on the stand to answer our questions. The nature of faith rests upon God. It rests upon that which is that who is holy, God who is holy, who is just, who is righteous. We rest upon this question and this question affirms our answer that God is almighty. God is the maker of heaven and earth. God is the good creator of all things. That's what this question is is driving us to. That's what the answer to this question in 25 is driving us to. Psalm 119.68 says, anybody know that? Short verse, Psalm 119.68. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and you do good. God governs and sustains by his providence in such a way that he makes all things subservient to the good design for which they were created and service to the ultimate end of the good of his children. In other words, God's providence has directed, arranged all things so that whether we identify them as good or bad, negative or positive, they are bent to only ever serve the good of the Christian. That's divine providence. Nothing is outside of God's sovereign hand and divine providence. There is nothing that befalls the Christian that lands in a place outside of God's design for these things to serve you. Everything, every single thing. Now that can be hard when we think about tragedy, when we think about a death in the family, a loved one, a child. These things, they can they, they've, they've destroyed um, others. 
but the Christian can trust in God's divine providence that God even uses those things. It is, again, a mystery of mystery. How? But it's for us to, by faith, trust. The Lord has said this, and it's true. Nothing is outside of God's divine providence. God governs and sustains in such a way that these things only ever ultimately serve us. Every affliction in the life of the Christian is designed by God to serve them. To rely upon God is to entrust ourselves to his wisdom and his promises. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. You hear her Christians at times, they'll say, uh, well, we don't say good luck. We say happy providence. I think it's a Christianese thing. Sometimes it's corny, but I get why, why they're saying it. They, they're trying to affirm that God is sovereign um, over, over everything. Okay, let's go to question 26. Um, someone read the question and then someone else read the answer. Who wants to read the question? Okay, the answer? The almighty power of God, everywhere present, whereby he does, as it were, by his hand uphold and govern heaven and earth, with all creatures therein, so that those things which grow in the earth, as likewise rain and drought, fruitfulness and barrenness, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, in a word, all things come not rashly and by chance, but by his fatherly counsel and will. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> now let me ask you, we got some time. Um, let me get a couple answers. How would you define providence? Someone who has no context for Bible or God or anything. You're a Christian. I know you read your Bible and I hear you talking about God. What is providence? How do you answer I'm not going to grade you on this. Don't be afraid to (laughs) say your answer. What's a very simple way to define it? Just two or three words. What's that? God's will. God's will? Yep. What else? The work of God's decree and his creation. Okay. What else? One more. Very simple way to define it. God causes all things. It's a good way to put it. Yep. All those are, are right. Um, all those get at God's divine providence. Simple. God causes everything. Um, he directs, he arranges by his providence. And the scriptures, uh, divine providence is referred to as the counsel of God, which gets that decree. Um, Isaiah 46.10. Let me have someone read that for us. Thank you. You guys remember the song? Um, I think we've, it's been a few years since we sang it. Um, oh, ancient of days. Remember that song? That, that, that would go back to Arnie uh, pre-mission uh, <laughs> days. Ron, you remember that song? Oh, ancient of days. That, that, that title of God, ancient of days, is not saying that God's just very, very, very old. It's saying that God has, he himself has established uh, time. He is before time. He is the ancient of days. It is a way of saying that God is very, very old, but it's also a way of saying that God is 
he is not only the foundation of creation, but he in himself, he is the foundation of time. He is the ancient of days, declaring the end from the beginning and him saying, God says, I will accomplish all my purposes. Uh, the crook in the lot um, is based off of this, this idea that God has determined what will be. Um, Isaiah nineteen seventeen. Let me have someone read that for us. Okay, again, the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purpose, has predestined, has determined against them. God's providence includes not only his knowledge of things past, present, and future, but also the decree or will and effectual working of God in all things. Um, I would even venture to say this, that our sins, past, present, and future, can be forgiven because of God's divine providence. He knows our sins, past, present, and future. Um, in his reformed dogmatics, Gerhardus Voss defines providence. He writes, what is providence? The eternal work of God by which he causes, uh, Jonathan's word, he causes the created universe as far as its substance is concerned to continue to exist. Concerning its power, he causes it to operate. And concerning its operation, to reach the goal intended by him. Creation, operation, destination. You can look at it in that way. Creation, operation, destination. Or creation, operation, superintention. Uh, God's divine intention in all things that happen. <clears throat> Your sinus says, ultimately connected with the doctrine of the creation of the world is the subject of the providence of God which is nothing else than the continuation of creation. Because the government of the world is the, is the preservation of the things created by God. So it is impossible that anything should exist even for a moment without his government and preservation. It is for this reason that the scriptures often join preservation and the continued administration of all things with their creation. In other words, God both creates and he sustains what he creates. Creation is one thing. Preservation is another. Okay, so he creates, but he doesn't, um, in a sense, uh, sort of create the world as this clock, set, set the clock, wind it up, and then stand back and just let the clock do its thing but God actually sustains what he created. That means that um, minds that function properly, organs in the body that work, leaves that fall from a tree, the wind, the waves, the rising and setting of the sun, the earth spinning on its axis, all these things, they don't just happen. God is the one currently causing the earth to be upheld on its axis and to rotate at the perfect degree an angle and distance from the sun and so that we don't burn or freeze all of these things God is actively doing he is the one who upholds it uh, Psalm 94 9 let me have someone read that for us he who plants the ear does he not hear he who formed the 
And then Acts 17, 25. The scriptures teach that nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. Darkness is as light before him. All things hidden are open and exposed before his eyes. Providence and preservation are related to the protection or perfection of God's omnipresence. And Psalm 94, when it says, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He formed the eye, does he not see? sort of getting at what has been called in theological terms, the the omnis, uh, the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God, uh, the all-seeing eye of God. Uh, Psalm 94, 9, we just read that. Um, Isaiah 29, 15, let me have someone read that for us. Thank you. Not even a little sparrow falls from a tree apart from God's sovereign eye and sustaining hand. The hairs of your head are numbered. Our internal organs continue to operate independent of our knowledge or or interference. We don't have to tell our heart to beat or our stomach to digest food. We don't have to call the the, the bile. Is, Is that what stomach acid is called, bile? Is that what it is? We don't have to call our stomach acids to say, digest the food. <laughs> I always pick the worst examples of the nastiest stuff to talk about. But it's, I'm trying to communicate that we don't have to interfere with our body for it to, to operate properly. Planets turn on the axis, I mentioned, by God's divine power. Every raindrop, every gust of wind is caused, governed, arranged, directed by God. Uh, Matthew 5.45, let me have someone read that for us. So in a, in a more, I think, agriculturally oriented context, this idea of uh, rain on the just and the unjust and the seed and all this, this verse would probably sit on us differently if we were maybe in that context. The reference to sun and rain shows our inability to produce ourselves. So healthy crops would have been completely dependent upon the natural rain and sun. Right? These things are governed by God's providence. Uh, there, there were no, no greenhouses or artificial light to grow uh, vegetables and plants. They were dependent upon the sun and the rain. God uh, predetermines if the sun will shine and where it will shine and how much rain will fall and if it will fall. And he determines the growth of every seed. Your father who is in heaven makes the sun makes his son and sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike. In other words, God is the first cause and continual operator of his creation. Just a few, I want to hit a few things quick before I go to the next section here. Even good or ill health are governed by God's providence. Are you healthy right now? Are you ill? 
waves of sickness go through families at our church at an alarming rate. <laughs> our family too. This comes from God's providence. Psalm, 24, Psalm 41, 2, 2 through 4. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Providence. Fruitfulness and barrenness, both agriculturally and biologically, are arranged by God. Genesis 29:31. Someone read that for us. And then Genesis 30:22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Honor and wisdom and health come from God's good hand and are ordered by his providence. Let me have someone read 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13, nice and loud for us. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head of all. Both riches and honor come from the Lord, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and your hand it is to make greatness and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Thank you. So honor and riches come from who? Wisdom comes from who? The Lord. Knowledge comes from who? Your daily bread comes from who? That boss that you dislike, who has been given a position of honor over you, that position, his honor came from who? Right? A state of humility. When we are high, when we are low, when we feel like our resources have been taken away, even that is governed by who? The Lord. God's divine providence. Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 10. I create light and darkness, calamity and well-being. God says, I form light and darkness. I do all these things. Not just good and positive providence, but also ill providence. If God is, in order for God to be sovereign, he has to be sovereign over both the good and the bad. The calamity and the well-being, the light and the darkness. Both come from God. Now that can be a longer conversation about sin and God and the relationship between God and sin. Uh, God is not the author of sin, but that's another study for another time. This is to say that God providentially has ordained all things. Okay. Yes. Okay. I might answer it now. I might wait until after. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and that, that gets at um, the idea that God isn't, he isn't simply allowing creation 
to function as he stands back, including your son brushing his, did our kids brush our teeth this morning? I'm not sure. <laughs> including the brushing, they did. Including the brushing of their teeth or not, he predestines it. So not only does he predestine, but in his predestining of it, your son being able to hold a toothbrush and get all of the molars in the back, his muscles in his arm, they are upheld by God. The teeth that he has, the, the way that they grow, how they look, all of that, God doesn't just stand back and look at saying, this is what I've done and look, look how it operates. He's actively involved in its operation. Everything from the greatest to the least designed and governed by God. Good question. Okay, I'm going to go to 26. We got, got 10 minutes. I think I can finish today. I was ambitious and chose three questions and I might be able to finish. Um, someone read the question to uh, 27 and then someone else the answer. What does this knowledge of the creation and providence of God profit us? Answer. That in adversity we may be patient and then prosper and have hereafter our chief hope proposed in God our most faithful Father. We can be sure there is nothing which may withdraw us from his love. For as much as all creatures are so in his power that without his will Yeah. So, uh, in, in this, with this question, the the catechism is is taking us from the knowledge of God's divine providence to specifically how does this inform, affect the Christian's confidence in this knowledge of God's divine providence, not just to care that we know it, but why we ought to know it and hold it as true. It's aiming at the confidence that the Christian can have in God because God is divine and he, because he is providentially governing all things. Um, con- consider the spiritual benefits of affliction. That's, that's another way I thought about this question. It's wanting us to consider the spiritual benefits of affliction and God's divine providence, the good and, and the bad. In uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, Paul says, Again, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, uh, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were also utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this was to make us, what? Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul says, my desperate condition to the point of Uh, death, wanting to die, was so that God did that to make me rely on God and not myself. So he sees the glorious end for which God designed his suffering, his depression, his downcastness, his despondency. He says, so that I would rely on God and not myself. And Psalm 119, 71, the psalmist says, it is good for me that you afflicted me. Does that sound rational <laughs> is that is that normal for us to say when we're going through hard seasons lord it is good that you afflicted me do we say that probably not i know that that's not my first thought <laughs> he says it is good for me that you afflicted me why that i may learn your statutes the psalmist connects the affliction of god with knowing god more through what god has revealed of himself through his holy commands 
Consider how God directs us to think about somber occasions and sad moments in Ecclesiastes 7. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Does that sound rational? So he says, going to a funeral is better for you than going to a wedding. Going to um, a wake or a memorial service is better than going to a birthday party. That's his, the, the, the logic that he lays out here. This is strange counsel that we get through Ecclesiastes. From our perspective, this is, this is weird, this is strange. It has this melancholy tone that much of Ecclesiastes is littered with. But the spirit writing through the authors tells us and gives us this, this wisdom that God has superintended the meaning of sorrow. He has designed and orchestrated the meaning of sorrow. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, It leads us to consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. And the day of prosperity be joyful. This is a verse that I think you should also try to memorize. And the day of prosperity be joyful. And that a day of adversity consider. God has made one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will come after him. Sorrows, trials, afflictions remind us that God is sovereign, essentially. And that we are not. By the way, this was God's counsel to Job when Job wanted to question the Lord. How, how did the Lord answer him? He says, essentially, I'm sovereign by saying, where were you? Where were you? Were you there? Where were you? Uh, Almighty God asking you rhetorical questions, not even giving you a, a time to answer. <laughs> were you there when I crafted the, the Leviathan, when I fashioned him? Were you there? Were you there? This is his answer to Job. And he says it to us through his word, not in the same way, but by his own divine Holy Spirit. On the day of prosperity, be joyful. And on the day of adversity, consider God made one as well as the other. Romans 8.28 is founded on the foreknowledge and decree of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Or you could say, divinely arranged together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, Article 14 of the Belgic uh, Confession says this. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing uh, can be hidden to us, by, or nothing can happen rather to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly father, who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creation under his lordship, so that not one of the hairs of our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our father. All things happen according to God's providential hand. And this, uh, this section highlights God as father an order to highlight for us again that God has he has a fatherly affection toward us 
So it's not just he's standing back and allowing it to happen, even predestining it to happen, but his predestining of it has attended to it his care and love for your good. He's not indifferent, but his love is shown to us even through his providence. Um, Romans 5, we'll close here. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope, character, endurance, suffering poured into our hearts. God's love poured into our hearts even through, this, through these things by the Holy Spirit. Again, nothing outside of God's sovereign, good, and loving hand. God has a fatherly, loving disposition towards his children, the Bible calls us, adopted. So we can never, ever say of God, you are against me um, or you're not for me because scripture says the opposite. God is for us and works all things together for our good. Okay. I feel like 